What a joy to be here and a great honor for us to be at the missions conference here at Open Bible Baptist Church. I've heard about this church for years and uh, known of, of its history a little bit. And so uh, to be here and be part of this missions conference is a great blessing for us. Go ahead and turn your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 10. <coughs> Acts chapter 10. I have appreciated the service already. Uh, the music program is wonderful. I appreciate your pastor giving us the opportunity to be here and his faithfulness through the years, as well as his father's faithfulness here and the great heritage of this church. Um, I really enjoyed the choir opener this morning. Did you? Uh, I asked Brother Kima uh, during the handshaking time, I said, I, I appreciate that good choir number. That was marvelous. I said, were you the one that hit the really high note at the end? And uh, he denied it. He said, no, that was not me. Um, but it was wonderful. And the special number and the congregational singing, just a great spirit here this morning. And uh, we're praying the Lord will bless this service and all the services of the Missions Conference. Thank you for being here this morning yourself. And uh, we're just excited. I was very encouraged yesterday to, uh, to be in this auditorium with, with uh, 22 men for a prayer meeting. And uh, we prayed for the countries where the missionaries who are with us this week are going. And um, I, that's an unusual thing to begin a missions conference. To be honest, it shouldn't be unusual. Uh, but I, I, was, I, I was touched by it, that, that your heart for prayer, I believe prayer is the key to getting the job done. Not strategy or planning or, or recruiting, but prayer is the key to reaching the world. And uh, I appreciate your pastor's emphasis on that. And then one other thing happened last night that just made me know we're in the right place this week. A few, uh, few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I asked my wife, uh, I, I've been on a gluten-free diet for almost three years. And I asked my wife, I said, for, I haven't had a piece of carrot cake for three years. I love carrot cake. I said, would you see if you can find a recipe for gluten-free carrot cake? And so last night we were having a wonderful meal just a fabulous meal over there, uh, five star. And, and the, the lady came around and said, uh, what would you like for dessert? We have key lime pie and carrot cake. I said, are either one of those gluten-free? And she said, the carrot cake is. So we are in the right place, I know. <laughs> God is in this meeting, I'm serious. So I mentioned the prayer first, so you would think I'm spiritual. I appreciated the prayer meeting, but I, I'm not sure which one I appreciated more last night. So let's begin with a word of prayer, can we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege to be here in this place. Thank you for the work you've done here through many years. Thank you for the mission's heart of Pastor Riddell and these good people and the generous giving over the last year. I pray it will only increase. I pray that our burden will increase. I pray you'll use your precious word to speak to us this morning through all the services of this missions conference in a very unusual way, powerful way, but also I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us in very specific ways. May we not leave this conference with just the general impression that missions is important, but may we leave here with the specific direction that you have given to us, personal direction you have given to us as to what our part should be. We pray that and ask for your spirit's fullness both for preacher and listener today. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian, a, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. 
which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. I'd like to start out with a very simple message this morning, and I'd like to start out with a very simple statement that I probably will repeat multiple times throughout this conference. God is on a mission. We use the term missions in the plural sense. I, I use it that way all the time myself. And we refer, in, when, we, when we say the word missions, we're referring to the idea of sending out missionaries all over the world with, uh, to spread the gospel. But God is on a singular mission, and he invites us to join him on that mission. I believe the story that we're looking at this morning of Cornelius, and we only read the first six verses, there's much more to the story. I would encourage you to continue reading it later today. But the story that we're reading or looking at here about Cornelius is a picture. It is a perfect illustration of the mission of God. It shows us, number one, how God works, and it shows us, number two, how God wants us to be involved in what he is doing. I believe Cornelius is representative of an unreached people group. That's probably not the first time you've heard that phrase, and I may say more about that tonight, but Cornelius was a Gentile. The word Gentiles in the Bible is the word nations or ethnicities, and so Cornelius represented the unreached people of the world. Peter represents a laborer with the gospel. If you read the rest of this story later today, you'll, you'll know, and you've read it before, I'm sure, that Peter was summoned, as he's referred to in verses 5 and 6, Peter was summoned to come to the house of Cornelius, and through the, the, uh, the testimony and the, the, the sharing of the gospel by Peter, Cornelius and his household were saved. So Cornelius represents the unreached people group. Peter represents a laborer with the gospel. He represents the church with the commission. And you and I have been commissioned. This church has been commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I believe this story has more purposes behind it. I believe it was to show Peter in the early church that the gospel's for everyone. If we're not careful, we get the idea that, that it's more important to reach where we are at home than it is to reach the world. And, and yes, it's important to reach here at home but it is equally important to get the gospel where it has not been. And then I believe this story also shows us that Peter and the early church are being slow to understand that and get that, uh, being slow to do that. They were doing a good job reaching the Jews where they lived, but that was all about to change because Peter was going to be thrust out to the unreached world. And I would suggest we also need these same reminders that the gospels for everyone and we need to be reminded this morning that we're being slow to get the job done. There's 7,040, I'm sorry, 7,085 unreached people groups in the world today. I'll define that word unreached tonight and, and, and get a little more in depth on that. But I'd like to show you a description of missions. I want you to, I want you to read this with me on the screen. And this is not a definition, it's a description. And it'll make more sense as the message develops this morning. Missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill his desire to get the gospel to the people of the world who have responded to some form of witness 
and are waiting for the rest of the story. Missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill his desire to get the gospel to the people of the world who have responded to some form of witness and are waiting to hear the rest of the story. That'll make more sense as we go through the message. But this is what God is doing. And this is the plan, this is the mission he invites us to join. So I'd like to give you three reasons this morning on why we should reach the unreached. Why reach the unreached? Before I give you the first point, I'd like you to look with me in verses 1 and 2, and let's talk about this man Cornelius. First of all, I want us to see from verse 1 that he was, let me, let me use this word, it doesn't say it in the verse, but he was a good man. Or I could say he was a trustworthy man. He was a competent man. I don't believe in this day and age you could have risen to rank in the Roman army without being uh, some, a man of some kind of integrity, uh, some kind of leadership and trust and respect of others. He was a centurion, which means he had at least 100 soldiers under his command. And so he was a man you could give a responsibility to, you could give a mission to, and he could be trusted to carry that out. He had some kind of leadership and others looked to him and followed him. We also notice from verse 2 that he was a religious man. The word devout in verse 2 can have two meanings. Sometimes when you see the word devout in the Bible, it means a, a, a religious attitude, an inner feeling of devotion. That's not what this means in this verse. This word means a religious sincerity that expresses itself in outward activity. Now, what is the evidence? This means that Cornelius was religious enough, you could see the evidence of it in his life. The word devout means to worship. And so Cornelius was a worshiping man. He was a religious man. Uh, notice the characteristics or the evidence of his worship. They're found in verse 2. First of all, it says that he feared God. Now, I, I used to believe that if you feared God, that meant you were a believer. Because if you feared God, you'd believe his word and get saved. But here we have God's testimony of a man who is unsaved at this point. That's, that's what I'll get to in a moment. But it says that he feared God. Notice also it says that he was a giver. It says he gave much alms to the people. When he saw a need, he likely reached into his own pocket and pulled out some shekels and shared with others who had need and helped them in their time of need. It also says that he prayed always. It doesn't say he prayed once in a while or when he had a problem. It said he prayed to God all the time. Now, I left out one characteristic because notice this says... He's a devout man and one that feared God. Look at the next four words, with all his house. So not only do we have a, a God-fearing man, a giving man, a praying man, but we have one whose religion has so impacted his life that he's influencing others to join him in that faith. His wife has joined him in this religion. His children have joined him. It says all his house. This could also mean that the servants of his household have joined him. That means others looked at his life and said, what you're involved in and, and the passion you have for this is so important that, that we're going to join you in this journey of faith, this journey of religion that you are on. But we have a serious problem. And now I'll give you the first reason we have to reach the unreached. It's because of their lostness. Cornelius not only was religious and God-fearing and giving and praying and influencing others, but he was lost. He was lost. The reason he was lost is because he had not heard the story of Jesus Christ. He was very sincere, but you know, sincerity doesn't save anyone. 
You can sincerely, most sincerely believe in the wrong thing and still die and go to hell. I've been to Kathmandu, Nepal, where we have a Tibetan translation project three different times. And there's the second largest Buddhist idol in the world sits in a region of Kathmandu called Bodhanath. It's called the Bodhanath Stupa. And people gather around that thing starting about 530 in the morning. It's a, it's a full city block. If you, if you start on one side and circle the entire idol, it's at least a city block in distance. And people gather there beginning at 5.30 every morning and they spin prayer wheels and they throw incense on altars and they burn candles and they prostrate themselves and they do all kinds of things in absolute sincere worship. But they're praying and worshiping gods that don't exist and they are still lost people. Sincerity is not a substitute for knowing Jesus. And may I say that faith is not a substitute for knowing Jesus. You can put faith in a lot of things, but until you put it in Jesus Christ... You're lost. The, the world will say today that Christianity offers one way to God, but it's just one way out of many. That as long as you're sincere, all religions lead to God. All roads lead to heaven. We're just taking different paths, but we're all going to the same place. That is absolutely not so. And I say that on the authority of God's word. Amen. There's a widespread belief today called universalism or annihilationism. And that is that, that all men ultimately will be saved. And, and there's another belief, I don't know where they get all these things, but there's another belief called annihilationism where, where if you do die and go to hell, you burn up quickly and it's all over. But the Bible teaches us absolutely that if you die without Jesus Christ, you spend eternity in hell. John, 3, 6, uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 3, verse 18 says, He that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. And why is he condemned? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. It's clear in these verses and, and in Romans 5, verses 15 through 19, it's clear that Jesus Christ is the deciding factor, the deciding difference between heaven and hell. So here's my point this morning. Why should we reach the unreached? Why can't we just leave them alone in their sincerity? Why can't we leave them alone in their worship of their gods? The reason we can't leave them alone is that without Jesus Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. The world must hear of Jesus. And I believe only to the degree that we grasp the lostness of this, this world will be the degree to which we're willing to do whatever's necessary to penetrate that lostness. If we don't understand that lostness, if we, don't, if we are not convinced of that lostness, we will not see the urgency of taking the gospel. We will not feel compelled to go. Do you know the assurance of salvation is a wonderful thing? My friend Charles Keene, who's been here before, and your pastor mentioned him earlier. I've heard him say this many times. For some of us, it's been too long since we were lost. Some of us have forgotten what it's like to put our head on the pillow at night and wonder what will happen if we don't wake up in the morning. Where will we be? I got saved at the age of six. Uh, back in July, I had the privilege of traveling through Alabama where my parents live and my daughter was with me. My wife was at home sick. My, my, I, I had my daughter with me. So we pulled 
up into a church parking lot at Springdale Baptist Church in Albertville, Alabama. If you're from there, which I am, it's Albertville, but it's Albertville, Alabama. We pulled up at Springdale Baptist Church and I pulled up where I think was the general spot right next to the front door off the steps of the front porch where my dad's 1965 Volkswagen was sitting in the spring of 1970. And inside that auditorium on a revival, in a revival meeting, I heard a preacher preach a sermon on hell. And I was so convicted knowing that I was lost in the center and on my way to hell. But when the invitation was given, I didn't go forward. Instead, I left the service and went out and got in the back seat of that Volkswagen and knelt in the back floorboard and put my head on the back seat and asked Jesus to be my Savior. When I was a college freshman, after my college freshman year, uh, I came home for the summer. We lived in South Florida at that time. And I was struggling with assurance of my salvation. Brother Hilliard was talking about this in the Sunday school hour. Struggling with the assurance of my salvation. And I, I, I took a, a, note, a notebook, a notepad, and I went to a city park near my house and sat down on a park bench. And I wrote a letter to God. And I expressed to God as clearly and as completely as I possibly knew how to do my absolute trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross of Calvary for my salvation. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know how else to settle it. I, I believed I, I trusted Jesus when I was six, but I was just plagued with doubt. And you know, the devil can do that. At the end of my letter to God, and I, I wadded the thing up and threw it in the trash and, and because I wanted to dismiss this issue for once and for all. I wish I had kept the letter. And I don't recommend you talk to God like this, but at the bottom of my letter, I wrote, P.S. If I die and go to hell now, it won't be my fault. <laughs> done everything I know to do. But the assurance of salvation, since that day, I've had that assurance. And that's a wonderful thing. But over three billion people in this world today have no assurance of salvation. Even the most sincere worshipers in this world worship without assurance of any place of peace and rest and paradise. We ought to reach them because of their lostness. If there's no other way to God but through Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the only way, we have no alternative but to do whatever needs to be done to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ into places where the gospel has not gone. If that means our money, then it takes our money. If that means our lives, it takes our lives. If that means our children, it requires our children. Whatever it takes is necessary because they're lost and on their way to hell. Now, if that were the only reason, I don't know that that reason would be good enough to convince most of us. Because there have been times in my life when I have a great burden for the lost. And I can just look at people walking down the street and think about the fact that they're on their way to hell and it breaks my heart. There are other times when it just doesn't concern me that much. I, I, I don't want to confess all my sins, but sometimes I don't care like I should. So there are more reasons, and I, I'd like to give you the second one. Not only should we reach them because of their lostness, but we ought to reach them, number two, because of his desire. His desire. Look with me, please, at verses three and four. He saw in a vision, Cornelius saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it? Say the next word with me. Lord. And he said unto him, the Lord said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. You know what we have in verses 1 and 2? We have the seeking sinner. 
And in verses 3 and 4, we have the seeking Savior. And could I ask you this? Are, are you thankful for the seeking Savior? Because you may seek as a sinner, and, and I know the Bible says in Romans 3, there's none that understand that there's none that seeketh after God. But here we have an example right here of the testimony of God of a man who was looking for God. And here's what I believe was happening in his heart. I believe it can be described by 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where Paul said of the Thessalonian believers that they turned to God from idols. And I believe Cornelius looked at the idols that he had worshipped all of his life. Idols made of stone or brass or gold, perhaps. And, and maybe he got to thinking, I've prayed to these gods all my life and they've never answered a prayer. I have never felt their presence. I have never seen them. I have never, I have never experienced a, a, a relationship with the God who made me. Now, listen carefully to this. Every man on earth has two witnesses in his heart. I know you've heard this before. Romans 1.19 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. That means the witness of creation. I'm sorry, the witness of conscience. First of all, conscience and the witness of creation. Anybody on this earth can look up at what God has made. And the Bible says in Psalm 19.1, one, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Anybody anywhere on this earth has a witness of God through this created world. And everybody on the face of this earth also has the witness of God in his own heart. He knows. He knows. And I believe when a man turns to an idol, as they do in Kathmandu at that Buddhist idol, when a man turns to that idol and bows to worship, the darkness of his heart grows darker. But when a man says, I'm not sure. I know God created me. I know there's a God who created me. I don't know his name. I don't know where he lives. I don't know how to find out about him. But I sure would like to know who God is. I believe the darkness of his heart begins to fade. And God begins to bring in light. And God does that through the Apostle Peter. So here's what we see in this point. We see the desire of God, first of all, in bringing Peter. But I want you to notice in, in these verses that this is a vision to Cornelius. And in verse 4, he addresses the one he sees in the vision as the Lord. This is Jesus coming down to speak to Cornelius. Isn't that amazing? Now, when, when he comes down here, he says, first of all, I've, I see your heart. God, he says, God sees your heart, your prayers. And your alms have come up for a memorial before God. God sees these people and knows when they desire to know the truth. God knows where to find someone to help. And it is the desire of God to bring the two together. But first, I want you to think about the desire of God here. Jesus came down to talk to this man. Now, think about this, please. Don't you believe Jesus could have given the gospel to Cornelius and he could have got saved right on the spot? All Jesus would have had to do is say, look, I did this for you. Look at my side. I was wounded for you. Look at the thorn, the, the scars from the thorns on my head, the thorn, crown of thorns on my head, and I did this for you. And Cornelius, if you'll trust me, you can be saved. I'm the one you're looking for. But Jesus didn't do that. See, salvation always starts with God, 
and, 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 and Jesus came down to start this process moving, but Jesus isn't the one who gave him the gospel. And that leads me to our third point. Our responsibility. Our responsibility. I believe God wants them saved. Do you believe that? Amen. He wants all of them. As we sing the children's song, red and yellow, black and white, uh, Jesus loves all of them, and he wants all of them. I was traveling down the road one day, this was several years ago, but I was listening to the Bible on, on CD, and I actually had my CD player sitting on the dash, my uh, portable CD player sitting on the dash, plugged into my cassette player with an adapter. You know that was a few years ago, right? <laughs> and I was listening to the book of Isaiah, and I was listening to Isaiah 53, great verses. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And he got down to verse 10, and here's what it said. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And I backed it up, and I listened to that part again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And you know what that verse is teaching us? It's teaching us that God the Father found pleasure in the death of his son. He found pleasure in the suffering of his son. Now what possible pleasure could there be in the crown of thorns and the, the beating and, and the smiting with the rod and the plucking out of the beard and nailed to a cross and shedding his blood? What possible pleasure could God find in that? One day I thought about Hebrews 12 too that says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What is this joy? What is this pleasure that God and, and His Son Jesus found in going through the most excruciating, painful death possibly that a human being has ever suffered? The joy they found in it was that you could be reconciled to God. That's how much He wanted you. He wanted you so desperately that He was willing to see His own Son suffer an excruciating, tormenting death. Because he knew on the other side of it, the pleasure God saw was on the other side of the cross and the joy Jesus saw on the other side of the cross was a relationship with you. That is the desire of God. And if you're not motivated enough by their lostness, can't we be motivated by his desire? And then it moves in to number three, our responsibility. Our responsibility. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, the Bible says that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, the Bible says he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I think that means he's given us the responsibility and he's given us the message and he has ordained that we be co-laborers with him. So this seeking sinner, Cornelius, God reached down and ministered to him and told him to send for Peter. That's the seeking Savior. Told him to send for the Apostle Peter. And he told him where he was staying in verses 5 and 6. He said he, his, his surname is Peter in verse 5. And he's in Joppa. And he's in the house of Simon the Tanner by the seaside. Gave him specific information. You go bring him. And he will tell you what to do. Do you see with me this morning that that squarely lays the responsibility to share the gospel message upon a man? It 
If I were God, I'm not sure I would have chosen that method. Because at our best, we're weak. At our best, we fail God. And could I humbly say this? At our best, 7,085 people groups in this world are still unreached with the gospel. I'm not sure I would have chosen that method. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have chosen Peter. He was a pretty rough character, you know. He was, he was brash, and, and, uh, and he, was, he would always talk before. He, he put his mouth in gear before his brain, mouth in motion before his brain was in gear sometimes. And God spoke harshly to him at times to correct him from his error. But the truth of the matter is that if men will hear the gospel, men must tell them the gospel. Look with me, please, at Acts chapter 10. Let me point out a couple of verses here as to what happened with Peter throughout this process. Note, please, verse uh, 17. I'm sorry, if, if we won't read it, but if you look in verses 9 through 16, you'll see that Peter saw a vision. So not only a vision to Cornelius, but a vision to Peter. And it was a sheet let down with all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things. And the voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what was his response to this vision from the Lord? No, not so. Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So the Lord often has to speak to Peter in sets of three. You'll also find that in John 21. But three times this, was, this took place. The sheet was let down. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Three times, verse 16 says, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Verse 17, notice please. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, he heard a knock at the door. And here were the messengers come from the house of Cornelius. Note, please, in verse 20, the Spirit of God said to Peter, verse 19 refers to the Spirit of God speaking to Peter in verse 20. He says, Arise therefore and get thee with them, get thee down and go with them. Say the next two words with me, please. Doubting nothing. Notice, please, from verse 17, Peter's doubting. I don't know what this is about. I don't want to go to the house of a Gentile. I don't understand this, this four-footed beast and creeping things, and you're telling me everything is okay now. And the Spirit of God said, you go, doubting nothing. And can I humbly say to you this morning, whatever your excuses are for not obeying the Lord and His commission to you to evangelize this world, you need to come to the place where you doubt nothing. Whether you understand it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you like the place God wants you to go or not, you need to go doubting nothing because this is the command and the direction of the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 34. After doubting and being told not to doubt, verse 34, Peter's speaking to the house of Cornelius now, and it says he opened his mouth and said, verse 34, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And what Peter had to learn through this vision of animals is that God wasn't talking about eating flesh. God was talking about reaching people. God was talking about sending Peter somewhere where he wouldn't have gone without the prompting of the Spirit of the Lord. But there's someone there who has responded in their heart to me, Peter, and I need a gospel witness there. Do you know that every missionary that's with us in this conference and every missionary you've ever met that God has given a burden to go to a specific place has been given that burden because God is already working there and people are ready to receive the gospel there. It's the way God works. Paul referred to this as the gospel that we were put in trust with, that was committed to our trust. 
In verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he spoke of the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And someday I believe we will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ and answer for the trust we were given with the gospel message. See, I believe that, that their lostness ought to, ought to break our hearts. I believe that his desire ought to stir our emotions because of our love for him and our passion for his glory. But I believe recognition of our responsibility ought to sober us. It ought to get us. That word sober doesn't mean the, the opposite of being drunk. It means get your priorities in order. Get your thinking lined up with God's because it is our responsibility that these 7,085 unreached people groups would no longer be unreached, but they would have the gospel. If we had time this morning, we could look at many other situations in the book of Acts where this same thing happened. Paul was, uh, I'm sorry, Philip was sent from the city of Samaria to, to the desert to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem to worship God. Well, doesn't he have gods in Ethiopia? Yes, but he's searching for something he doesn't have. Paul was sent to Philippi to reach Lydia, which worshiped God. She's already worshiping. Why does Paul need to go? Because she didn't know Jesus. Uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, uh, Paul is in Corinth and he wanted to leave this town because nobody's responding to the gospel and it's such a wicked, horrible place. And he wanted to leave and, and go somewhere else and the Spirit of God wouldn't let him leave Corinth. And here's what God said to him in a vision in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. He said, you stay right here and you keep preaching for I have much people in this city. And Paul looked around in Corinth and thought, I don't see anybody. <laughs> Nobody's receiving this message. And God says, oh, I have people here. Just keep preaching because he knows where they are, doesn't he? So the application for us today is if they're lost and he wants them saved, where's he sending me? He might be sending you across the street. He might be sending you to a coworker. He might be sending you to a family member and he might be sending you to a foreign field. The question is not, is God sending you? The question is, where is God sending you? To whom is God sending you? Now let's go back to our description of missions again. Missions is the plan God has chosen to fulfill his desire, to get the gospel to the people of the world who have responded to some form of witness and are waiting to hear the rest of the story. Do you not believe this morning that in El Salvador and Ecuador and Brazil and North Korea, that there are people who would be saved if we just told them about Jesus. What are we waiting for? Why are we not already there? Why, aren't we, why haven't we already penetrated all 7,085 of these unreached people groups? There are souls there who are looking for God, and we have what they need.